0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Quick note before we begin today— um, in, I don't know, a couple of weeks, we're going to have a Q&A episode on our other podcast, the Biblical World Podcast. So if you have questions about culture, context, archaeology, history of the Bible, and would like to hear those discussed, then you can send your questions to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet them at onscriptpodcast, and we'll be sure to put them in the queue. So... That's for an upcoming Q&A episode on our other podcast, Biblical World. Thanks so much to Jason Stark for producing this episode and many others as well. Couldn't do this without you, so we really appreciate your help. And
1: thanks to all of you who support the show. Enjoy this episode. Hello, OnScript listeners. Today, I am here with the Reverend Dr. Jerry Huang, who is the academic dean and associate professor of Old Testament at Singapore Bible College. He has authored numerous articles and several books, including The Rhetoric of Remembrance, An Investigation of the Fathers, quote-unquote, in Deuteronomy with the Sifrut series in Penn State Press and Eisenbron's, a Hosea commentary, Discourse Analysis of the Hebrew Bible with Zondervan's exegetical commentary series on the Old Testament. And the book we're going to be talking about today which I am very excited about, uh, Contextualization and the Old Testament Between Asian and Western Perspectives. And that is with Langham Press, Langham Partnership in the UK. Uh, Well, welcome, Jerry. Um, And maybe we can begin by just, uh, you can tell us, because we'll get into this book, uh, but this book demonstrates very clearly that you have lots of research interest. Um, So I'm really interested to hear how did you get into scholarship and how did you end up in Old Testament scholarship despite clearly reading lots of other stuff?
0: Yeah, thanks Drew for having me on the OnScript podcast. It's a pleasure to be here and especially uh, to join you after having listened to a lot of the podcasts through the years. Uh, This kind of uh, work certainly comes out of uh, existential experiences For me, as uh, someone who's um, born in the United States, but of uh, Chinese descent, living and uh, growing up as a bicultural person brought a certain set of lenses uh, to society and eventually to faith when I came to faith. And the questions that I brought also uh, sprouted in my own uh, journey to understand the Bible better. And I like to tell my students that I became an Old Testament teacher because that was where I had uh, the most questions myself. This is an ongoing journey to try and answer my own uh, questions about how to read the Hebrew Bible properly. And as uh, my wife and I moved overseas and I was teaching in a cross-cultural context, uh, there were these constant feelings of deja vu uh, in seeing that the uh, Hebrew Bible and the entire Bible uh, is not going to be the Western uh, imposition on Asia that it has sometimes become. And when I talk to my students more and more at my institution, Singapore Bible College, uh, they were the ones frequently reflecting back to me how they found their own cultures helpful in many instances to understand the Bible. So where the Bible was sometimes most foreign to me as someone American-born and American-educated, the students uh, were instrumental in helping me uh, see that there's something about the uh, Far East, what we would uh, call the Far East, which helps us unpack certain aspects of the Near East. And so I began to listen to the students and uh, curiosity is the biggest value I try to instill in students and embody myself. So as I began to read more widely, this Old Testament project uh, became bigger and bigger. So maybe the subtitle of Between Asian and Western Perspectives tries to capture a bit of that breadth, but hopefully not sacrificing depth in the process.
1: Yeah, not at all. In fact, I feel like it was a a series of deep dives. And for me, and this is quite honest, um, every chapter I thought, like, where is he going to go next? (laughs) And then halfway through the chapter, I think, how is he going to connect this to the thing he was just talking about? And you do every time. And then I remember when I got to an iconism and uh, uh, iconography, I thought, "Oh, here's where I'm going to finally disagree with this guy." Uh, and you surprise me again. <laughs> so it was it was like a foray. And you engage. You know, you talk about Western and Asian perspectives, but maybe you could just talk for a second about. In the same way that Western is kind of an amorphous term, we slap on everything, you know, from a certain section of Europe over to the West, Asian is this blanket term that doesn't quite fit. And you go into very specific and regional and cultural ver, cultural versions of uh, Asian theologies and philosophies. Um, what do you think people generally get wrong about, if, if we can say, Asian thought
0: yeah, well, Asia uh, is uh, a huge term, actually, uh, as as many of our readers uh, would know. And um, to pit Asia against the West uh, a- as uh, polar contrasts would fall into the kind of reductionism that I think we're all trying to avoid nowadays uh, by, by not using us versus them dichotomies. So I do spend some time in the first chapter trying to define uh, what Asian is and what Asian theology is, uh, because it wouldn't be proper uh, to speak of Asia as a monolith. Uh, You have East Asia, um, more Confucian cultures. Uh, You have South Asia, uh, where um, Hinduism and Buddhism would be dominant. And then you have West Asia, which many of us would know instead as the Middle East. Uh, A lot of these designations uh, reflect a certain view of the world. Even the designation of what is in the East uh, privileges to a certain degree the center, which is uh, taken without criticism sometimes to be the West. Uh, so um, in in this book, uh, I begin by trying to unpack uh, what my understanding of Asian is. Asia is such a huge uh, continent uh, with uh, several billion people. So uh, what I try to do is to illustrate uh that we can certainly speak uh, in biblical scholarship about the ancient Near East, even though um, Asia itself is a bit of a flawed term, and the East uh, falls into a certain East-West kind of paradigm. Uh, But when we talk particularly about Asian uh, theology, uh, this is where uh, things uh, begin to fragment, uh, because Asian theology can mean everything from privileging uh, a local cultural context, such as Japan, India, or Indonesia, over the authority of the biblical text. Or it could also mean using Asian lenses, local cultural lenses, to see better what is in the text. These distinctions sometimes can be lost on those who are looking at so-called Asian theology from the outside. Uh, And anything that feels like it challenges a more Western understanding of the Bible can feel like contextual theology. And so this is a where um, I like to repeat the story, uh, which I have put into the book by Robert McAfee Brown, the mainline Presbyterian theologian. Uh, He talks about how he attended a conference with Latin American theologians. And at some point uh, they were puzzled and they said, why is it that you uh, always refer to what we do as contextual theology, but when you are doing it, it's just contextual. It's just a neutral theology without any modifiers. And so I try to get inside that cultural dynamic uh, without pitting Asia uh, against uh, the West. And in the same way that Robert McAfee Brown came to recognize that all theology is contextually situated, uh, what I'm trying to do is to show how Old Testament scholarship in particular um, has had a situatedness which is sometimes lost on uh, the keepers of the discipline. And this is where I try to bring uh, my... Uh, bicultural uh, lenses to this and say to our discipline, some of the things that might seem strange are actually not so strange. They only seem strange because our starting point is already quite far from the world of the text. So perhaps this is where um, certain kinds of Asian uh, views on the Old Testament might help all of us to understand the Hebrew Bible better.
1: As you know, somebody who teaches the Old Testament uh, you know, almost every semester uh, to undergraduates, Anybody who's taught Old Testament or New Testament, you know, that feeling where you're trying to grab for the metaphors and the words, because you can see this by the questions the students are asking, they're not getting what's going on in the text. And as somebody who teaches or used to teach world religions, I feel like uh, this was finally the thing that created the right metaphors from the right spots in the world that I could actually have that conversation in chapter two. Uh, you get into the issue of sacralization and lexicalization, which I thought was fascinating. And I'll just admit, I did not know some of the things about the King James Bible uh, that you put in that chapter that makes so much more sense. But what do those terms mean for you in this book, sacralization and, and lex- le- lexicalization? And you say of this language called bible And so what do you mean by all of those things? Um, and then we'll get to the KJV in a second.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, the second chapter is uh, my discussion of how Bible translation itself is a kind of contextual theology uh, which usually operates at a subconscious level since uh, we receive the Bible and we think of it as the Bible without realizing that every Bible translation involves some degree of interpretation and trying to bridge cultural and historical distance. Uh, So the uh, linguistic dynamics uh, that I try to talk about uh, relate to how a Bible translation enters culture for the first time and then creates a vocabulary for faith. Uh, Some of the linguistic phenomena uh, at work would be things like lexicalization, uh, where the first generation of Bible readers encounters things in the Bible that are strange and fresh. uh, But when these become normal and then people just take them after a while to be biblical, then the result is what is called sacralization, where the biblical idioms just become the Bible. Uh, What used to be new and fresh and strange just becomes the Bible, and people cease to realize how these idioms are actually foreign to uh, the idioms uh, native to the language. And then there's a third uh, linguistic phenomenon, uh, which I mentioned, uh, called defamiliarization, and that's the need to re-encounter uh, the Bible in its freshness. And for those of us in theological education, this frequently takes the form of instructing students to retranslate the Bible, which they knew uh, in translation only, but then to encounter the Bible in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek uh, without those layers of tradition, in a sense, hobbling us to the same extent. Uh, so um, th- these are just uh, linguistic phenomena that I try to trace uh, in Bible translation in general. Uh, so that we might uh, be able to look under the hood, so to speak, and see how Bible translation shapes the way we do theology. Since translation itself is an act of contextual theology, sometimes it's hard to see that uh, in the Anglophone world because the Bible has been with us for so long.
1: Yeah, and, and and we will, you know, when we teach it, we talk about this with the Septuagint and try to show all of these types of uh, interpretive translations and at the same time become completely blind to them. I thought, you know, this... It's almost like a uh, living metaphor becoming a dead metaphor, but then that further step of then becoming, you know, sacramental and, and or sa- uh, sacred in its uh, tone. I, I will tell you, I'm very tempted to go through every because t- I want to talk about every single thing in the book because uh, I was so fascinated from beginning to end with this uh, this particular book. But I'm going to withhold because I want readers or listeners to become readers uh, of the book. But I do want you to talk a little bit about and you, as much as you want. Uh, why you talk about the King James uh, Bible uh, and what that has to do with this issue of lexicalization and uh, sacralization in the Chinese version uh, translation of the Bible.
0: Sure. Thanks, Drew, for that invitation. The King James Bible is, is, uh, is massive in uh, its uh, cultural influence. So this is uh, an appropriate occasion to talk about how it is not less than a contextual production. Uh, Of course, uh, it is uh, the Bible uh, to the Anglophone world. But sometimes uh, that status uh, as a classic, uh, which is something that any uh, older version of the Bible uh, can attain as far as its status, uh, can sometimes hinder how Bible translation is an act of contextual theology. So I try in the book, with some help from Alistair McGrath, uh, to explore how those same three linguistic phenomena are found in the book uh in in the king james bible um, in lexicalization uh, i tried to trace how uh, the kjv uh, privileges the southern dialects of english uh, from the 17th century uh, and this meant that the bible once it became the bible in the hands of the translators and in the hands of the reading public in the english-speaking world saw their own use of language uh, shaped by the Bible to an extent that we are still the heirs uh, to this linguistic um, event. Uh, so when, when you and I, for example, talk about buying time, that sounds so contemporary, <clears throat> but we don't realize that this is an idiom that comes from uh, the Aramaic of uh, Daniel. Uh, so something like a quarter to a third of all of our Uh, English idioms have come from this Bible, but we just don't realize that turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and buying time and all of these uh, idioms uh, have their origin in uh, the King James Bible. Uh, So these are the kinds of idioms, though, that were strange uh, to uh, people in its original audience. Uh, And on the way, though, to uh, to becoming normal, the uh, linguistic phenomenon of sacralization, uh, then a lot of people begin to think that what is in the Bible is therefore biblical. Now, there's a paradox there, right? Uh, the Bible itself is a translation, but as people encounter the translation and it's just the Bible to them rather than a translation, uh, then uh, we have even the forms of the Bible being endowed with biblical dress and therefore biblical authority. And the example that I use uh, with the KJV Bible is that the Pronouns, thee, thou, thy, and thine, uh, become the preferred ways of speaking to God uh, in the English-speaking world for centuries to come. Uh, But what happens um, in in that misunderstanding is that we don't realize that these pronouns uh, were never going to be quite, uh, for the original readers, what we think uh, them to be. And Alistair McGrath uh, shows that uh, these pronouns were already archaic in the time of the KJV Bible, but now they've become normal. And we still have Christians who think this is an exalted prayer language to talk to God. And then finally, um, defamiliarization involves uh, re-encountering the Bible in its uh, freshness so that we can know not just what it says, but what it means. Uh, sometimes the biblical idioms are so familiar and we even memorized and internalized them that we don't realize the extent to which we have been shaped by them without a deeper understanding of what they might mean. Um, and I try to illustrate this with a few examples from Psalm 23. I'll refrain from sharing the the secrets here and hopefully that will <laughs> yeah. um, help people uh, to be intrigued by the book. But the, the reason for looking at the KJV is that this is, of course, an English-speaking book uh, an English book, uh, which uh, is going to be published uh, primarily, at least right now, for the anglophone world. So the KJV Bible will be familiar. Um, but the other reason is that the uh, KJV Bible and its translation tradition uh, underlies most of the early Bible translations in Asia. They were the missionary translators uh, who worked on versions of the Bible into languages like English, uh, into Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean, and others, uh, were missionary translators who uh, used uh, the English revised version of 1885, uh, which traces uh, back to the KJV, um, as a base text. And this is true, for example, of the Chinese Union version of 1919, which is basically the Bible for uh, Chinese Christians worldwide. Uh, So um, the fact that this uh, Chinese Bible has uh, become a classic means that it has shaped uh, the way in which Chinese Christians think and talk about their faith to such a degree that sometimes Chinese Christians don't realize the linguistic disconnect uh, with the world around them. Uh, The Chinese Bible uh, introduces certain idioms. Um, In some cases, it, it breaks the rules of Chinese grammar, uh, but Chinese Christians don't realize this. Uh, and this means that the Chinese Bible becomes an act of uh, contextual theology by giving Chinese Christians a vocabulary for how to talk about their faith. And the the example that I share uh, in the book uh, concerns the way in which Chinese Christians talk about sin. Uh, this is a hugely controversial uh, issue uh, within the Chinese world because the Chinese word for sin, as as well as in Japanese and Korean, uh, is a character for crime. So when uh, Chinese Christians uh, share with those outside the faith that, that uh, the Bible says we are sinners, it sounds uh, to people outside the fold like they are being accused of being criminals, murderers, uh, thieves, uh, those who are guilty of serious crimes. So um, this has always posed a difficulty in trying to bridge uh, the Chinese Bible's conceptual world with the world outside the fold, but I try to show in this book that actually the Chinese Bible does a pretty good job of contextualizing sin, uh, and we just have to attend <clears throat> to how it does um, metaphorical theology using various sin metaphors. Uh, so that's that's uh, what this uh, second chapter is about, trying to show how Bible translation creates a vocabulary for faith And even though it represents a kind of contextualization, uh, if we follow the lead of the Bible and Bible translation itself, we learn about the methods of how to do contextual theology.
1: Yeah, so on that note of thinking of uh, metaphors and and terms, the next chapter you talk about this issue, and so you you bring the discussion straight into a discussion that many churches are having today of, do do Christians and Jews and Muslims worship the same uh, Abrahamic God? And you take it into the... Well, you split it in between this same God question versus the term question, and uh, between God, Allah, Yahweh. Uh, um, I guess we wouldn't include Jesus in this conversation, but how do those two different categories work, Same the same God question versus the term question, and then how does that inform our God talk? Yeah, thanks, Drew, for,
0: for that uh, framing of the, the issue. The, the next chapter, I, I do try to address uh, what has... Um, been traditionally known as the term question, what do we call God? Uh, the, the reason uh, this is important uh, as we step outside of a more Western or Anglophone frame of reference is that uh, when uh, Christian faith uh, in the Jewish Christian Bible uh, will arrive uh, in a new culture, one of the challenges that every missionary or translator will face is what to call the deity. Every culture already has existing terms for deity. So do we try to create continuity by using the terms that already exist uh, and uh, blend old and new? Or do we invent new terms, uh, which might cause people to uh, think in the receiving culture that this God that you're talking about is brand new and is foreign uh, to our culture? Uh, and so this is something that that uh, missionaries and translators always face. Uh, and the point of uh, doing that in Western cultures uh, has long uh, come and gone. Um, but actually, uh, the words in European languages like God or French for Dieu uh, uh, and um, other languages, these words are not intrinsically sacred. Uh, they were taken over from other cultures. And, and so um, when I... Then go on to talk a bit uh, about the uh, same God question. Uh, We frequently um, get stuck along the way uh, because uh, we have different um, linguistic understandings of what this term God even means. So to to discuss the uh, same God question, um, what I try to show in this chapter is that it's it's an outgrowth of a long running missiological and historical uh, discussion surrounding the term question. But um, because we're having so much of the scholarly conversation in English, uh, there's a lot that's lost. So I try to bring in Asian Bible translations and the Old Testament's own contextualization of God language, El Elohim, and how El and Elohim are cognates to uh, Arabic Allah and bring all of those to the table.
1: Yeah, and, and even, even some of those more basic Semitic points between Arabic and Hebrew uh, and Aramaic flattens up the controversy uh, a little bit right out of the gates. Um, and then you have a, a very witty uh, way in which you show, which I had actually, as many times as I'd heard the song, I'd never thought about it before. How George Harrison uses "My Sweet Lord" to deal with the the term question, uh, I guess, without the same God question, or maybe he's trying to solve the same God question with the term question in that song.
0: Yeah. So uh, the, his uh, song "My Sweet Lord" and and um, and, I, and I talk a little bit about a cultural appropriation and, and what good and bad cultural appropriation would be. Uh, but but this was a really fun chapter uh, to write on divine translatability. Uh, I like to tell students, and they seem to find this helpful, that our, one of our big challenges is that the Arabic term, Allah, it used to mean God, but in the setting that we're now in, uh, people want to know whether Allah is God. So if we can grasp the linguistic subtleties of that, statement, then a lot of the controversy falls away. But when people uh, don't realize that that uh, what seem to be theological questions uh, are grounded in different linguistic assumptions, that's when we fall into all sorts of misunderstandings. And uh, the recent history of the same God question shows that people are often talking past each other. But actually, the Old Testament has its own version of the same God question, because the question here is whether Ale is the same as Yahweh. The patriarchs of the Pentateuch apparently knew Yahweh as El, uh, the cognate term that underlies Allah in Arabic. So if we follow the Old Testament's lead, then
1: we figure out how to address the same God question nowadays. Yeah, it 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 was great, and it was a fun chapter to read as well. The next chapter you deal with the practical application of it is the Chinese notions of reciprocation and how they differ from Filipino notions of reciprocation, and specifically in thinking about covenant and law. I wonder how much in your own thinking, if I can drag you outside of the book a little bit, sure. if you've put that in conversation in your mind with um, John Barclay's work on grace. Or any of that Second Temple Judaism work on reciprocation,
0: right? Right. Yeah. This this was a, a this is actually a, a, a spin-off a research project uh, for me as I was looking at, at um, these elements of uh, chapter five after the book was done. Um, what I what I was trying to do uh, first is to understand how the the notion of covenant and and law has been treated uh, in Hebrew Bible scholarship and what i noticed very quickly is that there's a strong tendency to privilege a more western understanding of grace uh and also of a covenant relationship that tries to get away from um what is perceived as the conditionality of old testament law uh so this has uh, obvious resonances uh with uh, barclay's work uh, on the gift and and in his book he he builds on the scholarship of the French anthropologist uh, Mauss to show that uh, the notion of an unconditioned gift that never expects anything in return is is sort of this uh, ironic uh, outgrowth of a uh, kind of culturally Lutheran frame of reference. And and this then uh, becomes normative in Christian theology. Uh, so, so kind of parallel to that, uh, I was trying to show that Unconditionality and conditionality are foreign constructs to impose upon the Bible, uh, whether Old Testament or New Testament. So, yeah, Barclay's work uh, wasn't directly in my in my mind as I was uh, working on this uh, chapter on covenant law and kinship, but it has a lot of uh, similarities, especially now that, that in missiology, one of the rising um, trends uh, has been to use... Uh, non-Western ideas of patronage uh, to uh, approach uh, non-Western cultures. And I I try to show that uh, some of the discussion coming out of Western missiology falls into the same kind of Western centrism uh, that it is also trying to exit. Uh, So yeah, Barclay's work, my work, uh, very much along the same lines, although I must say it's a, it's a real honor to be mentioned in the same sentence as John Barclay. Uh, he's someone who has has been writing on this uh, for, for much longer, and this is kind of my first foray into the field when it comes to uh, law and the, and the Christian and how we understand covenant, maybe differently, with an assist uh, from non-Western perspectives.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever felt this way before, where you're reading something where they're just naming something that you felt at least in kernel form, for a long time. Uh, and, then, and then they're expounding it for you and finally giving you the terms and the ideas. Um, and that's how I felt about this chapter, is lots of things that were kind of floating around in the back of my thinking came to the fore. And then, of course, uh, I thought the discussion, it was very interesting to me, the the issue of the, the, the difference between, um, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, uh, but the Chinese versus the Filipino version of this reciprocation Uh, to kind of shadow and contrast uh, what might be going on there. I thought it was brilliant, uh, and the implications to what's going on in that New Testament conversation seemed so obvious after I was done uh, reading what you had had to say. So, kudos. Yeah, thanks very (laughs) Uh, much.
0: This was fun to write. Um, And I I learned a lot about Filipino culture in particular, uh, because uh, patronage works a certain way uh, in Filipino culture with uh, all of their different histories of colonialism, Uh, having been occupied by empires three times over. So these uh, ideas have a resonance uh, which I can only approach as a cultural outsider. But social scientists uh, studying the Philippines have made their work available so that outsiders like me and like you can see uh, what reciprocity feels like and what happens when uh, we talk about grace in a culture like that. Uh, When we talk about this concept of of grace, uh, people can sometimes experience it as an endless cycle of reciprocity because God has blessed us so much that we owe God this unpayable debt. And the irony there is that grace becomes the deepest guilt trip that you could never dig yourself out of. Uh, So uh, there are culturally situated components uh, to how we talk about basic concepts like grace and patronage, which we always need to be mindful of.
1: The uh, last month or so, I was on a on a panel with Taylor Lau, and he discussed his book on shame. And uh, in a room full of people who were very interested, and I, it, and I noticed by the questions people were asking that he was not going to break through the cultural barrier for some people um, about their views of their their loaded culturally loaded views of shame, and and kind of sway them over to the thing that he was trying to say. Um, so when you got to shame and guilt uh, in, in these cultures, I thought the grid and group distinction was very helpful uh, again there. Uh, so can you explain very quickly what you're doing with grid and group and how you think that helps thinking about shame and guilt in, uh, in various w- ways in the Japanese culture and the Old Testament? Yeah, again,
0: uh, I am ethnic Chinese, uh, so I, I can bring certain cultural lenses uh, to this discussion, which make uh, concepts like honor and shame a bit more native uh, for me. But we uh, should mention that the best discussions about honor and shame have taken uh, with respect to Japanese culture. And uh, the, the reasons for that uh, have to do with uh, 20th century history. Uh, so social scientists uh, looked very closely at Japan uh, in the aftermath of World War II and it goes back to an American anthropologist uh, at Columbia University by the name of Ruth Benedict. And she writes a book um, called The chrysanthemum and the Sword, uh, which has had a monumental impact on the field of anthropology, looking at honor and shame, as well as even uh, the way in which Japanese people see themselves. Um, but fast-forwarding a few decades, um, a lot of the scholarship on honor and shame Uh, has been shown to be reductionistic uh, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. But there's an irony in our field of biblical studies uh, in that a lot of the discussion around honor and shame is picking up the obsolete notions of honor and shame, uh, which uh, were once propounded by the guild. Um, And uh, now we have uh, missiology works saying that Understanding honor-shame societies is the claim uh, that we need to embrace in order to do mission properly. And, and now we have this strange paradox. Anthropologists no longer believe that there are things called honor-shame societies. And by that, they don't mean that honor and shame as concepts are wrong, but the, it, it's more that the move to reduce entire societies to a fixation on honor and shame uh, ignores the fact that honor and shame are present in every society, honor, shame, and guilt uh, to varying extents. Uh, so you have uh, you you might almost say two different sets of cultural blinders. One is reducing uh, the cultural other to a fixation on honor and shame is going to bring problems of its own, and I and I go into a few humorous examples of how this frequently happens in Western cultures. Uh, You know, I I grew up uh, in America and people were constantly um, asking me about, you know, martial arts and Kung Fu and that kind of thing. Uh, So there's a a long trope uh, in Hollywood that Asian cultures are basically about honor and shame. You've got everything from the karate kid to Mulan and, you know, all all sorts of um, other films that that essentialize the Asian other to a fixation on honor and shame. So that's one set of cultural blinders. The other one you could could say is that um, realizing that honor and shame and guilt are part of the cultural equation for everyone. Uh, It's just that these are parsed out differently will help us then to understand both ourselves and the Bible better. Uh, So it's not that we, broadly speaking, in Western culture and the Anglophone world, inhabit a guilt-innocence paradigm, but the Bible inhabits an honor-shame paradigm, Uh, that would be sort of the older but now obsolete way of looking at uh, the cultural other. But if we realize uh, that all of us inhabit uh, these realities to some degree, then we break down the us versus uh, them distinction that says we are individualists and they are collectivists. And this is where I try to bring in the grid group theory to show that uh, we're, all, we're all shaped by uh, two sets of uh, variables, the extent to which uh, we conform to an internal grid uh, or sets of cultural uh, norms, and also the extent to which we have a group affiliation. And uh, once we realize that these two uh, variables are at work in every culture, then we stop categorizing uh, the world into us versus them, individualist versus collectivist. And then we have a two by two uh, grid of cultures. All of this goes back to the British anthropologist, uh, Mary Douglas, uh, when she took her training and she said, well, let's see what happens if we start looking at ourselves using the same tools that we've used to look at the cultural other. And her results were fascinating uh, to show that, that individualism and collectivism, freedom from rules and adherence to rules, uh, all of these were parts of every culture. And then when we crossed these variables, uh, then we're able to see ourselves much more clearly. And all of this is pertinent to Japanese culture because Japanese culture and its particular understanding of honor, uh, shame, and guilt – uh, I argue, in the book, are much closer to the Hebrew Bible's uh, categories than the Middle Eastern paradigm than that a lot of uh, missiologists uh, recently have used. Uh, so for some of the details, I'll have to refer people to the book. But, but basically, the, the Mediterraneanism, which uh, is assumed in so much of the recent literature on missiology, is, is flawed, I argue. So we should take on Japanese lenses, and they'll help help us understand the Hebrew Bible better.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I can call you to pure speculation or maybe you have an insight, um, but I mean, it does seem like a strange move just methodologically to say, we're going to go from Southwest Asia all the way to the extremities of Eastern Asia, out into the the ocean of East Asia uh, to find uh, a a parallel uh, paradigm for honor and shame. Do you, do you have any internal justification for that or you just say, hey, look, this is the, when we hear these two descriptions, these are the two that seem to fit?
0: Probably we, we owe uh, the tendency to categorize uh, the world into us versus them um, to Ruth Benedict uh, because she was writing for an American audience. Uh, she was a Department of Defense contractor who was assigned the task of understanding Japan. Uh, and she uh, came up with Uh, A description of Japan, which was incredibly simple and elegant, but which inscribed and um, became prescriptive in a way for how people from all different disciplines view the us versus them uh, dichotomy. Uh, And even though anthropology has um, seen in the postmodern turn a much greater awareness that researchers themselves have a position, they have a context and that they're situated, uh, unfortunately, uh, we've seen that when people talk about patronage, honor, and shame in missiology, they're still using the same kinds of us versus them distinctions. So, when when those distinctions are present, then anything not Western is just sort of Eastern, uh, and it doesn't really matter whether it's the Middle East or you know the the Far East. It's all kind of the same to us. So, no self-respecting anthropologist would take an example from Southeast Asia and then impose it upon an East Asian context to understand what just happened in this cultural misunderstanding. But but that sort of move is unfortunately common uh, in missiology of Western vintage. I, I think probably it's kind of a um, move to simplify a complex other for the sake of explaining concepts which are unfamiliar. Uh, so as, as someone uh, who along with other um, Asian-Americans, has labored uh, with these kinds of um, perpetual foreigner stereotypes for all of my life. Uh, These comparisons are are not just tired, they're inaccurate. So um, I advocate moving beyond them. And if we try to get inside uh, the way in which Japanese people, for example, uh, think about honor and shame, with the help of um, the social sciences, then we realized that, oh, it's actually very different from uh, what Ruth Benedict proposed. And actually for those who are culturally more Western, we don't have this uh, unbridgeable cultural gap between ourselves and Japanese people that we might have thought was there uh, because of the fact that supposedly uh, they are honor and shame, and we are guilt innocence in our cultural orientation. Uh, so so th- this is part of what I'm trying to do in the book by uh, iterating through different cycles of the Western and the, the Asian uh, cultural lenses uh, and, and in the process of uh, breaking down some of these uh, misunderstandings that come with bridging cultures.
1: And, and I'm sure you intended to do this, but um, you know, part of the goal was to break down those us versus them. That's Asian over there. We're Western over here. And I think one of the benefits of the book – I won't gush the entire time, but um, is that you actually show us lots of discrete Asian cultural norms that help explain what's going on in the Old Testament, which leaves the reader at the end of the book with – You know, a whole toolbox full of um, cultural examples that uh, where you can't walk away going, "Well, that's Asian anymore." Um, The the conflation no longer works by the time you get to the end, which is is great. It was a wonderful feeling. I'm glad that that uh, those parts of
0: the book made sense because I always had to ask the question, "Who am I writing for?" Um, It's it's both those with a More western frame of reference, as well as those without, and, and that's one of the beauties and challenges of writing in English. You never know who's going to read your stuff, so so who is the insider and outsider for the readers? I, I was uh, constantly wondering that myself,
1: yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. That's you know, that book proposal, you were like, Who's the ideal reader? and you probably had to name about 17 different people,
0: yeah. It might it might, be, it it might head, feel a bit scattershot right? as
1: a result, but I'm
0: thankful that even though you felt uh disoriented at times in the chapters uh, everything seemed to make sense by the end of each chapter
1: <laughs> oh yeah it, it it's my love language it's pixelized arguments that um where you can see the through line uh, emerge as you read on yeah. so i thought it was brilliant the uh chapter on iconography was the one where i thought like aha here's the part where i'm going to part ways with jerry um but i'll i'll leave that to the readers um to to go look at that one on their own but i, I thought it was brilliantly done and i ended up actually not disagreeing with you but uh you uh you buried the or you you stayed your hand so i couldn't see exactly what you're doing until just the right time you have this gift of making academic writing compelling with little cliffhangers and reveals and uh it's very nice it's a style that i think more people should appropriate including myself i am going to uh not talk about the iconography chapter, but I'm going to leave that for uh, the readers. And I want to go to this issue on time and uh, what you call the West's hyper fascination with linear notions of, of time. And I've written a little bit um, about Egyptian notions of time and compared them to the Hebrew Bible. Um, and again, I thought, oh, maybe I've gotten it wrong and you're going to correct me, but I think, I've, I think I'm think i safe. You might You might not think so, but I think I'm safe on this topic. Why do we need anything more than a linear sense of time? You know, we've heard the, the Bible is a big story, beginning, middle, and end. Uh, what more is there to it yeah, than thanks that? Thanks uh, for um,
0: highlighting what I think is, if, if I had to pick among the chapters, uh, the ones in which I'm both most excited but, but most uh, apprehensive on how they're going to be received. Uh, here you go. This is uh, the, the chapter that that made me wonder sometimes, because uh, the scholarship that I had to go through uh, to write this chapter really uh, sprawls across disciplines, uh, and I had to figure out how to talk about this. Um, so the, the issue, as, as you noted, with time is that there's a tendency uh, for uh, philosophy of Western origin. I, I don't even want to use uh, Western as a modifier for philosophy, as if we can... Be so clear cut. Uh, But philosophy influenced by um, the Hellenistic tradition will tend to see the distinction between us versus them as a distinction between linear and cyclical or circular views of time. And and it's not hard to find uh, different examples of this uh, in the philosophical tradition. And when people begin to equate or conflate, as I would argue, linear time uh, with the Bible's own conception of time, uh, then uh, what we see again is an othering tendency, so that the Bible itself is going to um, be seen as, a, as a, either a cultural other, which uh, is foreign to us, or perhaps more insidiously, as a, a biblical reinforcement for the worldview that we already have. Uh, and, and both of these are possible outcomes of looking at the Bible in this way. And so what I try to show uh, in, in this final chapter on creation and pantheism uh, is that um, all cultures uh, have a view of time, uh, which is linear and cyclical. Uh, we have uh, statements uh, like history repeating itself, and we have um, typology in the Bible, which by its nature and definition involves some kind of re- recapitulation of past patterns. So without denying that the Bible has a telos and a mini-narrative that moves from creation to a new creation, it is a an overall a, a narrative with a purpose and with a goal and an end. But there are lots of cyclical components uh, along the way. And um, what I try to show is that a, a book like Ecclesiastes helps us uh, bridge those worlds by helping us see that biblical time is not solely linear and theological. Actually, the, this uh, view in philosophy that the Bible basically has a linear view of time is something that has been denied by Hebrew Bible scholars for uh, about 50 years. Uh, but somehow our dear colleagues in theology didn't get the bulletin that the Bible's own view of time is not going to be linear in strict contrast to a cyclic view of time. So I'm trying to catch up our theology colleagues on where biblical scholarship is. So that's the more Western perspective that I'm bringing, but also trying to bring in a more Asian uh, perspective by showing how the cosmos itself is both linear and cyclical. And and this is where I try to bring Ecclesiastes uh, in conversation with Hinduism. And the cosmos, uh, in its shape of both space and time, We'll have linear and you know, cyclical components. And I think Ecclesiastes helps us to see that.
1: Yeah, and I think I, I was wondering as I was reading this chapter that, and, and the same thing I wonder when you, know, you read the Bhagavad Gita is, you know, is it a metaphysic uh, that I'm reading or is it a phenomenology? You know, I, I have the same misgivings um, with some theologians and their concepts of time from the Bible as well. But when you bring in Ecclesiastes, I think many of them would want to say, like, "Oh, well, the Ecclesiastes is not a metaphysic of time; it's it's just a phenomenology. It's just describing how it seems to us." But that's, but you know, it's it's kind of like the anthropomorphism uh, write-off. Have have you dealt with that um, objection? I've
0: I've heard it. Um, probably I, I haven't uh, gotten enough attention or notoriety from from this particular book uh, to encounter that uh, conversation full force. Uh, but certainly this, um, view of, of non-Western, uh, religions is something that, that is frequently seen in the academy. I think the way in which most non-Western philosophers of religion would approach the issue is to say that, um, this, uh, distinction between metaphysics and phenomenology or epistemology is itself a more Western distinction. Uh, so, Uh, how can we ever uh, sort of exit our own perception completely and approach the world from outside? I mean, this is a distinctively uh, Cartesian uh, view of the world, the world and the universe from outside, as if we can ever overcome our own situatedness completely. So there might be a certain synergy between forms of uh, critical realism and a less Western penchant for saying that epistemology, phenomenology, and metaphysics are not uh, as easily pulled apart as people might think. Uh, and um, I think the way in which the Old Testament does that through a book like uh, Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, is by saying that your life is tahat hashemish underneath the sun. So in your experience of life under the sun, uh, this is how it's going to seem. And this is also the way in which uh, the rhythmic life that you experience unfolding under the sun is also shaped by our God to be both predictable and unpredictable. So that's where the linear and the cyclical elements come in. So it's less about trying to find out what's um, above the sun, so to speak. Uh, But if we just say stay under the sun, we still learn an awful lot about what is transcendent without losing our groundedness in what is imminent. I imagine this is probably how Coelho would answer that question and, and say that, well, we're under the sun and it's frustrating. We don't always understand it, but there is adequate revelation uh, for us to draw conclusions about life. But it, we have to privilege the inductive experience of life rather than using the deductive categories that exist outside of ourselves to make sense of everything. Uh, that's, I think, how Coelho would approach this uh, longstanding issue i mean it's an old issue of you know what is real and how do we know what is real
1: yeah and and you attend to the kind of linear dimensions it opens up with seasons and the kind of the, the setting of the linear tracks and then the cycles within it and the discussion of ruach there is fascinating and um okay we're going to close out with a speed round here uh, and so right. you know how this works um We'll go with fairly short answers, and I have some really bad jokes, so I'm brace ready. yourself. Uh, Matt Lynch loves the bad jokes, so this is all for Matt. Um, what biblical theological work has had the greatest impact on you? If you can name yeah, one um, or two,
0: I, I think all of us who who work in the prophets would would cite uh, Walter Brueggemann's "The Prophetic Imagination" as an influence. Um, that. Um, also, probably been shaped by Abraham Joshua heschel's The Prophets uh, more than any other work because he does a a lot of interreligious dialogue uh, in that book, and that's uh, a neglected feature of his work so i'd have to say you know on the Christian side of the equation, it would have to be Bruggemann, and on the Jewish side,
1: it would have to be Heschel good answers. Um, do you know any good Hare Krishna jokes? Oh dear, uh, well. <laughs> or bad ones. No, no, no I
0: don't. I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking of the uh, refrain in George Harrison's song, My Sweet Lord, where right. where in the right. background you've got these vocals saying, hallelujah and Hare Krishna. And that's the first thing that came to mind. So, So no, I don't. And I wouldn't want to crack jokes about a tradition that I don't understand deeply. That would be cultural appropriation, which is what I'm trying to get away from, right? <laughs>
1: There you go. Uh, have you ever had a situation – because you've taught in the United States as, as well as Singapore, right? Right. Okay. Um, have you ever had a problem, something embarrassing or something weird or anything you want to put in this category? You can kind of – it's free for all that you've had in Singapore that would have never happened in the United States or vice versa. Um, yeah. Uh, are we talking about the classroom or are we, yeah, just talking yeah, like about the classroom experience or teaching or, you know, working with students, the, you know, some, something different between those two uh, environments. Um,
0: maybe, uh, on the American side of the equation, um, I, I suppose, uh, there are always going to be some students, uh, who see an East Asian face and wonder how well I speak English. Uh, and, and uh, the, the where are you from questions are usually ones that I've learned to pre- preempt as a teacher. So when I tell people that I was uh, born in the United States, I'm Chinese American, and I've also uh, lived and taught in other places, um, that puts certain people at ease. But uh, yeah, all of us who are Asian Americans have experienced uh, the where are you from line of questioning. And we've learned how to distinguish the sincerely curious uh, from the insincerely i um, curious uh, as we encounter this uh, perpetual foreigner stereotype. So, but I, I would say that here in, in Singapore, people always get quite confused because they hear me speak English with an American accent, and they might hear me speak uh, Chinese with a with a Taiwanese accent. So, uh, more than once, people <laughs> in in the classroom uh, or on taxis or in public spaces in Singapore, they hear my wife and I s- switching between American English and Taiwanese Mandarin. And at some point, they throw up their hands and say, what are you? Uh, and uh, it's just a cultural combination that people don't encounter very much.
1: So, so you get the where are you from and what are you in, in both spaces. Okay. It's it's true. But at least in Singapore,
0: um, American English and Taiwanese Mandarin are prestige dialects. So hmm. we, we kind of get double respect after people overcome oh, nice. the, sh- the shock of... Of hearing two accents that they don't usually uh, encounter in combination.
1: If you ever want to be humbled, just go to go to the UK and speak in American English, and it is not a prestige accent.
0: <laughs> uh, no, no, no. And if if I were to switch to a Singaporean accent, uh, which I can't do very well in the UK, um, people actually find that sometimes more familiar uh, hmm. than the American accent because there's, yeah. they see the my East Asian face and they're expecting something other than an American accent.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay, serious question. Is AI going to ruin higher education? Uh, you mean it hasn't already happened? <laughs> <laughs> We're only halfway
0: through the semester. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think uh, all of our institutions are, are trying to figure out uh, what happens when it's not just uh, students who can get... Uh, better papers written through AI, but lecturers and, and teachers who are finding that, that AI makes uh, fewer typos in syllabi <laughs> than, than we would, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a game changer for all of us. Um, and I think we, we face uh, this kind of existential crisis. We can learn how to grow with it, uh, or uh, we can fight it and then find ourselves on the losing side of this Luddite battle. Uh, we're not going to win. So yeah how are we going to work with this and grow as a result? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an exciting challenge, but the old stuff is not going to work because yeah. ChatGPT and all these other tools uh, are coming for us and we have to be ready.
1: <laughs> and we, uh, yeah, I, I'm actually, I use them in class. I'll just show, you know, we'll ask, put questions to them and see how they do and uh, error error correct with ChatGPT like crazy. But uh, I've also had them write stories for me in certain tones or modes uh, to give to students. So yeah, I've been trying to uh, make the best of of it. I'm also uh, now using Google's AI chat bot, which is called Bard, B A R D. Right. So I, I ask it to write a joke with Old Testament in the punchline, uh, and here's what it came up with. Um, what do you call a group of people who are obsessed with the Old Testament? And this is its answer: an Old Testamentarian. Oh dear. <laughs> so, is AI going <clears throat> to ruin higher education?
0: <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> no. we should ask AI itself, and then the <laughs> the answers are surprisingly nuanced, uh, probably better than real people could come up with. Uh, uh, I suppose the AI bots get asked that question more than anything else. Are you coming for us, and how should we prepare? <laughs> At to, to recapitulate an us versus them distinction.
1: Right. And if you want a terrifying conversation, uh, the New York Times columnist who had like a two-hour conversation with Bing's AI where it fell in love with him, tried to tell him his wife was cheating on him and wanted nuclear secrets. And uh, it is just language prediction, um, but it, it leans into what it thinks you want to hear. Um, so it's it's fascinating. Yeah, we'll yeah, have to yeah, yeah. keep an eye on it. Finally... Uh, and this is a sincere question. Um, as, as listeners can probably tell, I really like this book. Why aren't more people talking about this book? Uh, I was, I've was i been asking around, hey, have you read this book? Have you read this book? And a, and a few people have. My good friend Joshua Berman has. Uh, Trimper Longman has. The people who endorsed it I see here. But uh, what do we need to do to get this book uh, in the classroom in America? Yeah, um, I, I won't claim to know why people are
0: or – uh, aren't uh, encountering this book uh, in their own circles, but I th- I think we're probably facing the reality uh, that when uh, literature of of any kind uh, gets labeled uh, as being out of the mainstream or not fitting within neat categories, uh, then people might not pay attention. I, when I try to describe this book, and, and I struggle myself to to explain that it's kind of both Old Testament scholarship as well as missiology, as, as well as a cultural analysis of our discipline uh, here in Old Testament studies, uh, as, as well as a deep dive of various Asian cultures. Probably my own um, challenge in describing what I wrote uh, is symptomatic of, of why a publisher or others who try to describe the book will find it to be difficult to, to um, capture in just a few sentences. I, I really try to do a lot in this book. Uh, and it is part of a monograph series with Langham. Uh, but there is a void, at least in, in Asia, I should say, of trying to uh, write a deeper dive monographs that explore how Asian cultural realities can help us understand uh, our faith better. Until we do that well, then the Christian faith in particular is always going to be, to some extent, a tool of Western cultural imperialism. And here in Asia, at least, uh, to have... The ability to fly an American or a Western cultural flag, um, in some circles, it's a liability. But to be honest, uh, in some places, it's still an asset. The mindset of the colonized and the ability to identify oneself as having Western connections still opens doors uh, for people here and will lend a certain kind of status. So I, I think we have challenges on both sides uh, of the pond. In, in the West of trying to take Asian scholarship more seriously but here, uh, in Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, at least, trying to recognize that not everything from the Anglophone West is necessarily good. Uh, we, we, sh- we all should have cultural filters and discernment for what is truly good, true, and beautiful. I think in, in a world that is more attracted to talking points, um, it, it's easy to lose sight of longer form arguments and analyses. And maybe because I try to do that and, uh, yeah, you're not going to get sound bites from me, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for our listeners who are looking for a text that will get you into Old Testament criticism, criticism of Old Testament criticism, uh, reflective missiology, um, deep dives into Old Testament thinking, the way the biblical authors are thinking and writing uh, the rhetoric. And then also, if you want a soft landing into a panoply of what will what we call this? Various. Uh, cultural phenomenon and ways of thinking in in different places across Asia This book does all of that remarkably well. So Dr. Jerry Huang, thank you so much for coming on OnScript and thank you for this book, Contextualization and the Old Testament Between Asian and Western Perspectives with Langham Press. Thanks so much, Drew, for having me on the podcast.
0: You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at Onscript. Script.study. Donate.